Hi, I'm Craig. And I'm Linda. And this is the Indie Travel Podcast at IndieTravelPodcast.com. This week it's episode 294, and we're talking about, what are we talking about? We're talking about <laughs> Vietnam and travel photography with Joseph Linashki. Sounds very interesting. It is. Did a great interview with him just the other week, and uh, looking forward to sharing that with all of you. There's also a bit of a, a bit of a secret coming right at the end of the show, so mm. you have to hang out for that. So this week has been one of domestic change. <laughs> We're in Auckland, which is our home city, and we spent the week, well, most of the week, staying with Craig's mum and stepdad, who live on Tanaki Drive in Auckland, which is. Uh, it's a coastal road, so you, the houses are only on one side of the street, and on the other side of the street is the coast and quite often the beach. So they've got a great view from their uh, third-story apartment out over the water, over the beach. It's gorgeous. Needless to say, we didn't get that much work done this week because we were a bit distracted by the view, and also because we had lots of things to do. I mean, we went out one day to have a coffee with um, a, a blogger friend of ours, uh, we met up with some of our other friends, had an emergency meeting because one of our friend bosses jobs, so we had to consult him with wine, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, it's definitely been a really busy one, eh? And then on the weekend, we moved across to the other side of town, to Odahu, where we'll, we will be for the next three weeks uh, looking after a place where our friends are visiting family up in the States. Yeah, so it's quite nice. We've got a, a wonderful place. Out the back, there's a bit of bush with lots of birds, and we'll play you a clip of the, the bird song in a minute. Just, I mean, we walked out the back onto the deck, and we were just overwhelmed with how many birds there were, and it was really nice. So it's a, a good, calm place. Although, saying that, I can hear a siren. <laughs> Maybe not as calm as I thought. <laughs> Smooth. Well, let's uh, play that bird song for you. This is uh, some of the native birds just at the back of our house set in Odahu in Auckland. I'm talking with Joseph Lenashki, a photographer and trainer currently in Oregon. Looks like a lot of snow there, mate, in the United States. Uh, while you're listening, you can take a look at some of his works at photojoseph.com. So, Joseph, welcome to the Indie Travel Podcast. Well, thank you, Craig. Well, to get started, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and about what you do? Yeah, certainly. So I'm, as you said, I'm in Ashland, Oregon. It's a tiny little town at the bottom of the state here. And yes, we are covered in snow right now, which is just lovely. It's a little mountain town. And this is where I call home. I have a studio set up here. And I do, largely these days, I'm doing commercial work. I tend to do a fair amount of travel photography. It's often more personal work. And I know we'll get into that in a little bit. But um, the most of the work that I'm doing professionally is commercial work, a little bit of portraiture, some events, uh, but kind of advertising, that sort of thing. Some local and, and some for larger clients all over the world. I actually just did a, a job for Mercedes, so that was pretty cool. Very nice. That seems like a, a dream job for, for many people. I mean, especially if you go and work with prestigious clients like Mercedes and get to go and uh, play around with some cars and take some photos. Yeah, Absolutely. That's awesome. Well, we're going to be talking about travel photography all through today. So let's start with the, the travel side of it. Uh, you were in Vietnam a little while ago. What attracted you to that part of the world? 
Well, Vietnam specifically was – well, let me back up. Southeast Asia in general is, is an area that I've always really loved, and I hadn't explored a whole lot of it. been to Thailand a few times and a little bit around the area, but um, when I had an opportunity to go to Vietnam, I really jumped at it, and it was actually for a job that I went there. I was hired to go in and work with some teachers and do an education project, and so I was uh, had the opportunity to go, and obviously I wasn't going to go that far and not – have a little bit of a holiday, not have some chance to go out and shoot. So my girlfriend came along with me. She's actually, uh, she's my wife now, but girlfriend at the time. And she flew out from her home in Europe and flew out and met me there and hung out for a little while, while, while I worked. And then we spent, gosh, I think another 10 days or so touring our way up the country. Nice. Where did you get to? Uh, let's see. Well, we started at the bottom. We started in Ho Chi Minh City and that's where I was working. And then from there, after the work, let's see, we went up to Muine. We spent a few days there, which was just a beautiful, beautiful area. And then up to Hoi An and to Hue and then to Hanoi. And we flew out of Hanoi, but while we were there, we took a side trip out to Heilong Bay for yeah, one night on a – did one of those little junk boat tour things. A little, little touristy, but it was fun. Yeah, that, now that's a place that you always see a lot of photos of um, because of the the beautiful color of the water and these these old traditional boats that are there did it did it live up as a live up to that as a destination for you well no <laughs> the uh, the colors were completely absent in fact um, some of the photos that I've posted for your readers are from there but I turned them all to black and white because it was just gray and overcast and the color was completely absent so the images were much stronger as black and whites um but it was still very beautiful and as far as the boats go yeah they all look like these great old traditional boats but they're really just a bunch of tourist boats that are designed to look like old chinese junks i mean let's be honest you can't put 50 tourists on a real old boat you know you can't have those things slipping into the sea but uh so they have these nice kind of luxury versions that just look like the old style boats and it's fun you know it's all it's kitschy but it's fun it's entertainment and you enjoy it so it was a great time i would definitely recommend doing it but don't expect major culture in that in that part of the trip yeah well, i guess it's a place that's become so popular that it's uh you know it places start to cater for what people are looking for when they arrive at a place and then all of a sudden it becomes just that yeah exactly and the funny thing is that there are I, mean, I, I don't know how many. There have to be hundreds of different companies doing tours on the Chinese junk boats. And you walk through the streets of Hanoi looking for places to sign up for them. And they all have the same name because they've all basically ripped off one company that had a good reputation. And they all – I don't even remember what the name of the company was now, but let's say it's called Bob's Tour Company. Every other store is Bob's Tour Company, and they'll say, we are the real Bob's Tour Company, the original Bob's Tour Company, the one and only Bob's Tour Company. And you're going, hold on a second. That ain't right. And it turns out that, from what I understand, copyright law is virtually non-existent, and so things like that aren't against the law. And so you get all these companies calling themselves the same thing, and it's really just a, a guessing game as to which one you go with and whether it's going to be a good tour or not. We guessed well and, and had a fine time, but it is a bit unnerving. <laughs> it's part of traveling in that part of the world, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. Well, if Halong Bay didn't, uh, I guess, flick your shutter, what was the, the best place you found <laughs> for uh, for shooting in Vietnam? What, what kind of got under your skin? Well, yeah, for me, I, I love shooting... 
you know, scenics and just your your average sunset, sunrise, that sort of thing. It's always really nice. But for me, what really uh, clicks my shutter, as you put it, is people photography. I love photographing people, kind of street photography, but not streets in New York, not streets of major metropolis, more streets of places like this. So, uh, okay, Hanoi is, of course, a very big city, so is Ho Chi Minh City. But touring around those areas, walking around those areas, and just doing street photography, photographing the people in day-to-day lives and the markets and um, and the restaurants and just all of those types of things, that's what I really, really enjoy. So for that, Hanoi itself was fantastic. It's a great city with a lot of culture and a lot of different types of cultures all smashed together. It's very, uh, it's a very cosmopolitan city, I think, as far as Vietnam goes, it's probably the most. And, uh, and so that part of it was great. But everywhere I went, you know, all the little cities, there's always a great street culture. You have, uh, I, I'm a big fan of street food. I'm total foodie. I love to eat and traveling. One of the main reasons that I'll travel somewhere is because I want to try their food. <laughs> I want to go eat what they have. And Vietnam is fantastic for that. Really, really great street food. And of course, there's a whole visual smorgasbord that goes around that that's wonderful to photograph. Yeah, absolutely. As you're talking about photographing streets and people, I know something that comes up often in, in travel photography circles is thinking about taking portraits of people. Do you uh, go up and ask people if you can take their photo or do you shoot from a distance or do you just do your thing and let everyone else do theirs? How do you work around that? I tend to mix it up a bit. It just depends on how close I want to get. Um, I don't shoot with really long lenses. So it's, well, I shouldn't say don't. I mean, it's, it's rare that I would try and shoot a portrait from across the street or something and try and get a tight shot on someone that they wouldn't know. I don't usually do that. And these days, and we'll talk about equipment later, but I'm not even carrying big lenses like that anymore. So usually if it's people, I'm either shooting a bit wider, so it's not a a photograph of an individual, it's more of a group of people. Or if I do want to get close, I will walk right up to them or get very close to them. And if they completely don't see me, then I'll probably just shoot and walk away. But if I think that they're going to see me, I will usually do that kind of international nod of look at them and kind of half point at the camera and raise my eyebrows in a questioning way and they'll either ignore me and go back to what they're doing which is perfect or nod their head yes or shoo me away and you know of course I want to respect that if they don't want their photo taken but um, but I generally ask in that international is this okay kind of a way that's that's usually how I handle it but of course as most people will tell you the problem is as soon as you as soon as someone knows they're you're taking their photo they'll change what they're doing so you know I, I only do that if I really need to get that close to them yeah absolutely if you're uh, as soon as the subject knows they're being watched they start yeah acting out of character and the thing you wanted to shoot is all of a sudden gone right that can happen yeah, yeah. It, it always depends on what it is like um you know, fish markets in hong kong for example people people there can be very it's very one way or the other people are completely and totally happy to have you take their photo and as soon as they see you taking their photo they'll pull out all their scariest looking wares to to show you and hold up for you um and others just shoo you away they they want nothing to do with it it's uh it's an interesting type of a culture and just you know you just kind of kind of go with it and try not to step on toes and try not to upset anybody you don't want to get chased down the street by a a guy with a huge meat cleaver um but you know you, you do what you can and try and get the photos that you can yeah, of course. Well, think about um, Vietnam. Is there any tips you've got for anyone going there in terms of either travel or photography? 
Mm, yeah, I'll give you one good travel trip. Don't take the trains. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, somebody warned us of that, and obviously we didn't listen. And um, yeah, we we made our way from the bottom of the top of the country by planes, trains, and automobiles. And uh, the flights were fine. We took an internal flight on Air Vietnam or something. I don't remember what the airline was. And the flight was fine, but the... The delay was astronomical, but I guess that's you know that's a risk anywhere. Uh, buses are great. There's these kind of luxury. Well, there's two kinds of buses. You have your luxury sleeper buses. They're absolutely fantastic. And if you need to go somewhere long, if you're going to go somewhere overnight, by all means, get these sleeper buses. They're very comfortable. These they're actual kind of bed like things. Not totally beds, but like a, almost like a chaise lounge type of a thing inside the buses. So everybody's got an area to stretch out on, and they're they're comfortable and clean and modern and, and very affordable. Um, the public buses can be terrifying, uh, but you just I advise don't look forward. Don't look out the windshield when you're doing 50 miles an hour down a rickety road and you're only inches away from hitting another bus before the driver swerves out of the way. You know, they do this all the time. They know what they're doing. If you don't look, uh, then you'll be fine. If you look, then you'll probably never get on a bus again. So just <laughs> don't look. Uh, but the trains, the trains are bad. The trains are really bad. We even, we went for the full-on, well, but it was supposed to be the top-end kind of sleeper car and ended up in something a little bit less than the top-end sleeper car. And it was noxious. It was uh, very uncomfortable. There were cockroaches crawling over the ceiling while we slept. Um, yeah. I, I kept telling myself that there was one cockroach because I'd only see one at a time. So I just convinced myself it was just one. And I refused to kill it because if I killed it and then I saw another one, I would know that there was more than one. But as long as I only ever saw one, I could convince myself he was the only one. <laughs> Tra- <laughs> trains, good, not so good. Good bit of psychological <laughs> warfare, though, against the, uh, the fear exactly. on cockroaches. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, the, the luxury buses or sleeper buses, I think they're called, are affordable and fantastic and on time and comfortable and, and a really nice, easy way to travel. And, uh, and it's not expensive at all. I mean, most of the people on there are backpackers, so it's a perfectly legitimate way to go and not feel like you're um, you're kind of going a little bit too highbrow for traveling through the region yeah very good we found much the same when we were there that was our preferred method of transport as well although we missed uh, missed all the cockroaches well see you gotta go back and try it <laughs> yeah, don't, yeah. Really. <laughs> I'm, I'm between two stations maybe well, you're obviously there to uh, to shoot photos. That's what we're talking about today. Um, what kind of considerations do you have to make when you travel specifically to do a photography trip? Considerations as far as as far as what? Uh, like in your your preparation, um, do you, uh, for example, do you scope out the um, scope out specific places to go, or do you just kind of follow where your feet take you? Um, yeah, I'm more of the latter. Yeah. I'm. I don't. I tend to not plan things too much. Um, I may make plans once I get there, pick up a, a tour guide or a book or something, or just talk to some locals and figure out what's good and what's worth seeing. And uh, you know, maybe I'll I'll take a kind of a high level view before and get an idea of what cities are worth going to, or if there's any festivals or anything like that happening while we're going to be there. But in general, I try not to over plan it. I really do want to just take it where you said as your feet take me i just kind of want to go with the flow and see what happens very nice well what about um your gear then are you you just said earlier that you you're no longer taking these big lenses with you so have you lightened up your gear 
Yeah, significantly. So on that trip, I actually was still carrying uh, some heavy gear. I was still carrying you know, the standard DSLRs, and I'm a Canon shooter mostly for for the DSLRs. So it's uh, you know a couple bodies and big lenses and all that. And as you all know, that stuff can add up in weight. And before you know it, you're carrying around thirty or forty pounds of metal and glass that that you just don't want to have everywhere you go. And then it becomes that whole thing of, well, I'm going out for dinner. Do I really want to take this big camera? Um, probably not because we're just going out to dinner. But gosh, what if something we see something great? I really don't want to not have my good camera with me. And you know, as a photographer, you always want to have a great camera. Sure, iPhones are fantastic. I mean, it's really amazing what you can do with them. But obviously, there's some pretty significant limitations to that. Um, but what I've done recently, as a lot of other people have, is I've moved over to this compact system, compact camera systems, where I'm shooting with something that's much smaller and much lighter weight, the whole mirrorless trend. Uh, the cameras that I'm shooting with now, I've got the Olympus series. I jumped onto the Micro Four Thirds system for Olympus, and I've got a Olympus Micro Four Thirds body, the little OMD, and three different lenses for it, and all of those take up about the space and weight of one smaller DSLR and one lens. And now I've got something that's equally powerful, and I think the image quality is absolutely fantastic, and it weighs virtually nothing. Just these lenses are so tiny and, and literally pocketable, and the body is uh, maybe not quite pocketable, but if you put a small lens on it, like one of the lenses I have is a, uh, it's a 28 millimeter equivalent. It's a basically a pancake lens. At that point, the whole thing can fit into your pocket. And at that point, you don't feel like you have to make a decision whether you want to carry all this gear around. Plus, if you have such lightweight gear, you can carry it everywhere. It goes into a smaller bag. You can fly totally carry-on. Um, even actually on this Mercedes job, I shot that on the OMD because what we were doing wasn't going to require the bigger files out of the Canon. And I shot entirely Micro Four Thirds. And my entire shoot bag was one small backpack that I could take carry-on along with my clothes bag. So I didn't have to check any bags, which can be an incredible convenience when you're traveling, especially if you're going somewhere far-flung and you have flight connections. And you know, obviously the whole missed, uh, lost luggage thing is no fun to deal with. So it just really can save a lot of stress and hassle there. But yeah, these Micro Four Thirds cameras or these any of these smaller camera systems, Sony's got some great ones out there, Panasonic, uh, all these brands have some really, really nice cameras, except for the big names. You know, Canon and Nikon haven't jumped in yet, so at least not to any level of seriousness, so it'll be interesting to see what happens there. Yeah, well, I guess they're protecting their uh, their high-level professional range, aren't they, whereas the others are trying to nip away at their market share. Well, and they're succeeding. They really are. I'm. If I had the cash to spend right now, I would get rid of all of my Canons, maybe keep, maybe keep a body and a long lens for shooting sports because that's something that the Micro Four Thirds, the smaller systems, still don't do really, really well. But I don't do that much of that. So I would get rid of all that and go medium format for all the studio work and all Micro Four Thirds or the smaller system for everything else. Because it really is good. I've shot many events, done many jobs on those cameras, and they're absolutely fine. That's amazing because I've seen them around kind of the the consumer level market at the the very top end of that. But I would not have uh, considered that they're, they're good enough for, you know, professional, as you were saying, product shoots and... Uh, and event shots, uh, event shoots. So. Yeah, well, events especially. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, you have to consider how the image is going to be used. And if you're shooting for the cover of Vogue magazine, then sure, you want a really high-resolution file. And it's not just because, oh, 8.5 by 11 or whatever, A4 size, 300 DPI. It's not that. It's the retouching aspect. You need a lot more pixels than that because 
the professional retouchers need to be able to get in there at a really, really fine level to do the retouching. So for that, you do need the big files. But there you're talking about medium format work. For the kind of things you're shooting for an event, let's say you're shooting a wedding or a party or anything like that, even a concert, those those files aren't going to get put on huge uh, billboards. are not going to go through that major retouching. You just don't need those massive files. And frankly, these what are these, I think 12 and 16 megapixel? That's still really big, and that's still way bigger than DSLRs were just a few years ago. So resolution's there, the quality is there, and it comes down to size and convenience. You know, it's not a, I, I don't look at them and go, oh, do I need the better quality? It's not about that. It's about, do I want to carry the big heavy gear around? The answer is usually no. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, um, we talked about shooting now. How about post-production for travel? Um, are you carrying like a MacBook Pro, or what are you doing there? Now, even there, I've scaled back. I used to have a yeah, MacBook Pro, kind of top-of-the-line MacBook Pro, and that was standard up until, God, I don't know, um, probably three years ago or so. And I realized that at the production, the post-production I was doing on the road was minimal. It was import, tag, you know, make sure I got the right shot. But then the heavy-duty retouching work or whatever other work I would do was happening back, back in the studio, back home, whatever. So... When I went to, to get a new laptop a number of years ago, I ended up buying a MacBook Air and the tiniest one, little 11-inch. And this is by no means is a graphics powerhouse, and it definitely – I feel the, the slowness of it if I try and do anything serious with my photos. But for basic processing and editing, it's just fine, and it is a much smaller and lighter weight piece of gear. But when I got that, the whole uh, Instagram – phenomenon it was just starting you know that hadn't really taken hold yet and so i wasn't really shooting for the social networks whereas now i'm doing a lot of that and so what i'm doing now more and more is not using my laptop at all and doing everything on the ipad and in fact i just got the ipad mini with retina which is now my absolute favorite piece of computer gear that i import my photos directly into there i use a a um, iFi card in my olympus cameras and the newer Olympus cameras even have Wi-Fi built in, so it's even better. But then you can transmit the photos wirelessly straight to the iPad. I can do any editing that I need to do on the iPad, and I'm ready to post immediately. And that's just a fantastic way to work. That's awesome. Yeah, and then you get back to your studio in uh, in Oregon and do the, the heavy work on a desktop. So, yeah. Exactly. I can just pull everything off of the off the iPad. And they're all still going to be on the memory cards as well, so you know, you've got your backup there. Um and that, I mean, even that in itself is a really nice thing. If you're shooting with a wireless card or with a camera with wireless capabilities and you're transmitting the photos to an, an iOS device or to an Android device or whatever, and you're transmitting them either at the end of every day or as you go, which I'm usually doing in my case, I'm just kind of doing it as I go, then you al- already have a couple of copies. And if you're posting to your blog or to a social network or to whatever, as you go, then you've already got backups in the cloud of your favorite images. And so long before you get home, you're backed up and, and totally secure, which can be a very comforting feeling to know instead of relying on those memory cards and hoping you don't lose them or having to sit in a hotel room with a laptop and hard drives and copying everything off every night, which can be a real drag. Um, you know, you're still copying the photos off, but if you're doing them, especially as you go, it's very quick and it's just a couple at a time. And so you don't ever have that. All right, it's time to sit down for an hour before I go to bed and get all these photos off and make sure they're backed up. Yeah, yeah, that's something that I struggle with. I know when when uh, doing video, so that's all good. 
Um, so say if a traveler knew their craft and they, they knew how to take great photos uh, and, and do their post-production, what's the first stage of going pro or what business models exist for, for traveling photographers? Well, for traveling, that's a tough one. If you figure it out, let me know. Um, <laughs> for travel photographers to go pro, it's it's. Uh, I haven't figured out a way to make enough money doing just travel photography. I think that part of the problem there is, you know, sure, there are some travel magazines that have dedicated photographers or probably pay some decent money for their photojournalists or for the photographers to get their images. But there's just so much out there that it's really hard for the magazines to justify paying really good money for images. And so it's it's harder and harder, I think, to make a living doing that. Uh, to be fair, I've never made a real concerted effort to become a quote-unquote travel photographer, where meaning that that's how I make my living. You know, I've sold a few images here and there, but when I go out and shoot, I'm not, when I'm doing travel work, yeah, there's always that idea in the back of my head that maybe, you know, I want to shoot an image that can be sellable. Like, for example, some of the images you'll see from Vietnam, I specifically shot them without people's faces. Either they're shot where the faces aren't seen or their faces are turned away or whatever it may be so that I don't ever have to worry about uh, about releases for any kind of commercial use. So that's in my mind, but I'm not really shooting for that specifically. So, yeah, as far as how to get into the business of making money travel photography, if any of your readers or listeners have uh, figured that one out, I'd love to hear about it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll loop you into the email if anyone gets in touch with us. There we go. Um, back to post-production then. I know you run a site dedicated to one specific bit of post-production software, which is Aperture. Can you give us an idea of what Aperture is and, and why you like it? Yeah, absolutely. So Aperture, of course, is the post-production tool from Apple that is designed for photographers. So it's, the whole idea with it is that you have a single piece of software where you import your photos, you do all of your organizing and categorizing and keywording and rating and all that sort of thing if that's what you're going to do and then you do your editing so any kind of retouching or color correction cropping all of that sort of stuff that you might want and then even getting into special effects things if you wanted to do a you know old film look or anything like that some things you can do in aperture itself or there are tons and tons of plugins that you can add to it for example the the nick plugin suite that uh, used to be nick software is now owned by google they make some fantastic plugins for Aperture, so you can do some really, really great work without ever having to leave Aperture or leave the, the ecosystem, if you will. And that software that's made by Apple, and I used to work at Apple, uh, so full disclosure there, I worked at Apple up until 2009, and I was in the marketing team there and a big part of the Aperture team and the marketing and development team for that. And so when I left Apple, that was a project that I started on the side was this little website called Aperture Expert. So ApertureExpert.com is dedicated to tips and training for Aperture users, and it's turned into quite a nice little business. It's now the number one Aperture site on the web. So if you're an Aperture user, just type in Aperture Expert, and you'll get right there. And we have all kinds of free free tips, free training, all lots of really, really great stuff on there that's completely free. There's a forum on there that you can get and answer, uh, ask any questions that you have. And then we support the site by selling paid training. There's a lot of additional training that you can buy and presets and things like that that you can uh, you can purchase. Yeah. Um, so for me, doing doing photo editing was kind of this this big black hole where all of my time was going to disappear into it as soon as I did anything at all. Is um, do you have any suggestions for photographers like me that that take a lot of photos and and do present them? 
but don't have a lot of time for uh, post-production or are kind of scared that that's that's too steep a learning curve. Sure, sure. That's it's a common you know I guess fear I suppose you could say even just it's it's very easy concern to have where you'll suddenly spend all your time doing that. But the thing is, if you don't spend any time doing it, which is kind of the alternative, then all you end up with is a hard drive full of scattered images and you can never find them again. And so when you're saying, oh, I want to see those pictures from that trip to Vietnam, you're digging around trying to figure out where they are. And if you haven't spent any time rating them or categorizing them, then you've got to show someone 400 photos when you really only want to show them 20. And that's just, it's not a good experience for anybody. So taking a little bit of time to do it is really, really beneficial. And you don't have to spend a huge amount of time. And that's really the thing is if you're, it just depends on what you're doing and the type of work that you're doing. You know, when I shoot commercially, I'm going to shoot raw and I'm going to take the time to go in for, you know, that, that final file or final files and do every last little bit of retouching and color adjustment and everything else that the file may need. But when I'm shooting more casually, for example, travel stuff, I may not even be shooting raw. I may be shooting just JPEG and on the little cameras, you can do this on any camera, but on these little cameras, they have, they're kind of designed for you to go in and tweak the image like you would for posting on Instagram or something like that, but to give it a bit of a look in advance. And so I have a particular way that I like my images to look. It's a high contrast. I like um, not totally oversaturated, but slightly saturated. And I really kind of chunk the blacks down so the blacks get really dark. And it's just a, a look that I like. And I have that dialed into the camera and then I just shoot JPEG. So the pictures are essentially done when they come out of the camera. Maybe they need to be cropped. Maybe I'll need to do some retouching. But that's not the intention. It's not what I want to do. When it comes to this kind of travel work, I don't want to spend time messing around with them on the computer. I just want to shoot and share. So Aperture is just a place to store them, sort them, separate out the best from the less than best. And that's pretty much all I'm going to do. I don't really get into all the retouching and color adjustments and everything else unless it's a commercial job, in which case, like I said, I'm shooting raw and that's the intention and it's fine because I'm getting paid to do it anyway. Yeah, absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. Well, um, you talked about the, the trainings that you run at Aperture Expert and I understand that they are going on sale very soon along with a whole lot of other photography apps and filters and all sorts. Can you tell us a bit about uh, what you're contributing to this? Yeah, absolutely. So it's this uh, this big five-day sale deal, and that's sometime early next year, I believe. And it's uh, it's not everything, of course, in the store, but basically what I have is a selection of training, some of the live training videos, and some of the presets. And I, th- I think it's about 25 or $30 worth of, of my stuff that's going into this bundle. And the bundle is, uh, as you said, it's absolutely enormous. There's a huge, huge amount of software and training and ebooks and all kinds of great things that are going into this. And you'll be able to buy it for just a, a very short five days. And so if, uh, if any of your listeners are interested in that, then be sure to come by AperturExpert.com and we will be selling it there. And it's, like I said, sometime early next year. I think it's in January or February of next year, which is uh, not that far away anymore. And yeah, it'll be a great way to get started with a whole bunch of really great stuff for very, very little money. It's I mean, when it, Everything comes in at something like 90% off or something crazy like that. So it's a pretty awesome way to jump in and get a bunch of stuff for a great price. Yeah, that's huge. Yeah, and the trainings, a couple of the pieces that I have on there, uh, some of the live trainings. So just to kind of explain that really quickly, live training is something I do on the site where I broadcast a training 
session that's maybe 30 to 45 minutes long and it's totally free when I broadcast live. And when we capture that and then sell the videos afterwards for just $2 a piece. So it's really, really affordable training. And it's not this highly polished, uh, everything's perfect type of training. It is very raw and unedited, literally. So if I make a mistake or if I'm fumbling and can't find something or if the software crashes or anything like that, it's all there. So you're getting the raw, dirty thing as if you were watching it live, but you're paying just $2 to get it. So it's a, it's a great way to get into some pretty good training for very, very little money. So, Joseph, thanks very much for coming on the Indie Travel Podcast today. Uh, before we wrap up, can you uh, remind us again where to find you? Absolutely. So my photography website is photojoseph.com, and photojoseph is the name you'll find everywhere. So photojoseph on Instagram and on Twitter and Facebook and all of those wonderful things. And then for Aperture, it is apertureexpert.com, and there is also an Aperture Expert Twitter account as well. So again, just Aperture Expert, and you'll find all of that. Perfect. Well, we'll have links to all of that in the show notes, along with uh, some of your photos from Vietnam. Thanks wonderful. so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you, Craig. Uh, thanks again to Joseph for coming on the show. We'll have links to uh, all of his sites and uh, him on Twitter and Facebook as well uh, in the show notes at IndieTravelPodcast.com. So now it's time for the tip of the week. And our tip of the week this week is jandals. Now, given that most of you aren't from New Zealand, you might be going, what? What is that? What are jandals? Well, jandals are the New Zealand word for flip-flops. And uh, we've been wearing them quite a lot this week because the weather has been spectacular. Sorry to those of you in North America, I know it's cold, but it's kind of hard not to gloat just a little bit. <laughs> well, you know, awesome. we, yeah. we've got an itinerant lifestyle and you're able to follow the summer around. Wow, yeah. it's, it's beautiful. Although it's we are thinking thing. about doing a double winter coming up soon. So yeah, we'll see how that goes. You can, you can send us <laughs> as many emails as you like gloating when we're in winter and you're in summer. That's fine. That's absolutely okay. Anyway, jandals. Uh, are not only important for when you're in warm or tropical countries, but also whenever you're traveling and staying in shared accommodation. And the reason for that is bathroom floors. Yes, bathroom floors can be a hotbed or a hot floor, I suppose, of disease and ickiness. And, you know, they're quite often wet and ah, you don't want to walk through that. So you can wear your flip-flops into the shower and it just protects you a little bit against, you know, problems of the feet. Yeah, I think it's kind of the discomfort rather than anything else. Yeah. So uh, we recommend that as well as some good walking shoes, you also take a pair of, a pair of flip-flops with you. Yeah, of course, uh, if you're really not a fan of flip-flops and some light walking sandals or something like that can do the trick. But I like just the Havana-style rubber throwaway $10 kind of jandals. It's quite good because you have lost many a pair, like yeah, the most the, recent ones the, that you dropped under a train. I know, don't drop them under a train. It's a very people. bad idea. Now, it doesn't sound quite as exciting as it... <laughs> it isn't actually as exciting as it sounds. We were just getting off a train and he had his, his flip-flops in the side pocket of his bag. I don't know how you knocked them. Maybe it was just with your arm, mm. but they kind of flopped out and into the gap between the train and the platform. So he really wasn't minding the gap. No, no, I wasn't. Hey, we spoke to Joseph today and uh, alluded a little bit to a sale coming up for not only the training that he does, but also a whole bunch of other photography stuff. 
Now, I'm not meant to say anything about this at all, so I'm kind of cheating by, by saying something about it on the show. Are you sharing but a secret? I reckon, just a little one, I reckon you should keep an eye out around January 5th on IndieTravelPodcast.com, on our Facebook page. And if you haven't signed up to the email newsletter, go and sign up for that if you've got any interest in leveling up your photography and getting a whole lot of goodies for you know, the price of a meal, then you want to uh, make sure you're following us in early January. So that's more than I can say. But uh, Sounds intriguing. Keep an eye out. Keep an eye out. Well, I think that's us for this week. So until next week, travel well.